Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. This is the podcast where we walk with Dante the Pilgrim passage by passage through the masterwork of Dante the Poet comedy. Hmm, pilgrims and poets aren't the same. Mm-hmm, that's very big in this passage. We're in Inferno, Canto 4, the fourth canto of Inferno, and we are at the end of it, lines 115 through 151. We're in the canto of Limbo. If you're just dropping in here, go all the way back, go back, go back, go back to the beginning of this podcast series, and you can walk all the way through Inferno up to this point with us and beyond, or just drop in here. If you want to see this passage, look on my website, markscarborough.com or Walking with Dante.com. If you remember where we were, we have come to a castle. Dante entered limbo. He saw sighing babies, men and women. Virgil did a whole song and dance about the harrowing of hell when Christ comes down into hell and yanks up the Old Testament figures, the figures out of Torah, and yanks them up into heaven. We then had the four great shades walk toward them. Homer, Horus, Ovid, Lucan walk toward them. They walked on, they walked to a castle, a castle, green grass, a little brook. They walked across the brook as on in <laughs> firm ground, which I did a thousand songs and dances about in the last episode. And here we are, we're inside the castle. So here's the passage. Then we moved over to one side to an open spot that was well lit and high up so we could see everyone. There in plain sight, on the enameled green, the spirits of the great were shown to me. To have seen all of them still lifts up my spirit. I saw Electra with a big company that included Hector and Aeneas and Caesar in armor and with falcon eyes. Also, I saw Camilla and Penthesilia, and on the other side, King Latinus, who sat with his daughter Lavinia. I saw Brutus, who drove out Tarquin, Lucretia, Julia, Marcia, Cornelia, and over by himself, I saw Saladin. When I lifted my eyes yet higher, I saw the master of those who know, seated with his philosophical family, all look at him and do him honor. There I saw Socrates and Plato closest to him and in front of everyone else. Also, Democrates, who says the world happened by chance, Diogenes, Anaxagoras, and Thales, Empodocles, Heraclitus, and Zeno. And there I saw the great collector of things according to their qualities, I mean Dioscorides, and also Orpheus, Cicero, Linus, Seneca the moralist, Euclid the geometer, and Ptolemy, Hippocrates, Avicenna, and Galen, Averroes too, who made the great commentary. I can't possibly present all of those there because I'm pushed on by my long theme. What I say doesn't come close to what I want to say. The company of six now dwindles to two. And my wise guide leads me along another path, out of the stillness and into the twitching air, so that I came to a place where nothing is that shines. Okay, this is a hard passage. I told you last time I was going to save this last passage till the end. It's got this giant catalog of all these people that he sees in limbo. We're going to go through them. I'm not going to go into 
giant detail about who these people are, but we're going to go through them. We're going to look at them. There's a structure to this list. There's a reason why all this happens. But I want to start in another place. I want to start actually back in 1980. Oh, God, I don't even know. 1983, I think. It's my first Dante seminar in grad school. The comedy so overwhelmed me in this grad seminar that I set a tradition for myself that I was going to read the comedy every single year at New Year's. And I do, still to this day. On New Year's Day, I take down Inferno and I start my way through. Sometimes I blow through it in three days, four days. I'm through the whole comedy all the way up through Paradiso and I'm done. Sometimes it takes me the whole month of January. It just depends on my mood, my place, my position, my workload, lots of things. So I have read this passage many times in my life, and I probably read it for 30 years before I saw something in it. Now what I see in it, I can't look away from, but I guarantee you, I didn't see this for the longest time. So without any further ado, I just like to go through the passage line by line. I can't really divide this passage up easily. I can in one way. I'll show you where it divides in a minute. But I'm just going to take it line by line, and we're just going to look at it as we go through it, or you can listen to it. Then we moved over to one side, and the we here has got to be all of them. It's got to be the Homer group, all six of them, because that's who's been moving forward to the castle and into it. So we, all of them, moved over to one side to an open spot that was well lit and high up. I just can't, I can't call your attention to it enough. Well lit, we're in hell. Where's the light? Light, there's a fire here that's lighting up the dome ceiling of the cave. Well lit, hell. So they're in plain sight on the enameled green. Notice those words. And it is that way in the medieval Tuscan, enameled green. The grass is, is green, and it's the color of, let's say, fine cloisonne. It's enameled. And yet, at the same time, we should hear that as an art word, a word about creation and craft and art. So, there in plain sight on the enamel green, the spirits of the great were shown to me. To have seen all of them still lifts up my spirit. Notice right there, the poet jumped into the text. That's the voice of the writer. To have seen all of them still lifts, it's in the present tense, up my spirit. That's the guy at his desk. Dante the poet has never been far away in limbo. He keeps coming back and inserting phrases. I didn't point it out to you in the last episode, but that whole bit when he says, talking of things that should be left in silence now, although it was good to speak of them then, that's the poet. That's not what the pilgrim would be saying. Over and over in limbo, the narrator lifts the curtain on the narrator. And I think that's important important to limbo itself. I think it's important to what's going on here that the pilgrim and the poet are in tension, but I'm going to save that. I'm actually going to save it for the next episode of this podcast, but I think that it's all sitting here right underneath the text. Okay, anyway, in plain sight, he sees all of them. And then let's look at who he sees. I saw Electra, not the Electra of Agamemnon, which you may know, but this is a different Electra. Uh, Dante may not know that Agamemnon probably doesn't know that Electra. This is the, uh, the daughter of 
Atlas and the mother of Dardanus, who is the founder of Troy. And in fact, the first people we see or that we see through Dante's eyes are the Trojans. I saw Electra, that is the mother of Dardanus, the founder of Troy, with a big company. We assume Dardanus is in that company. But, you know, her whole family that are the the Ur-Trojans, the beginning of the Trojans, then included Hector. And then there's Aeneas. There's Virgil's Aeneas standing there. I used to, once upon a time in my life, make a big deal about Aeneas being right here. And I'd say, oh, look at this. The line between history and fiction is being blurred. I actually don't buy it anymore. Medievals have a very different notion of what texts do and what texts are. And that Dante would see Aeneas as a historical figure, whereas I don't, would see Aeneas as a historical figure is not actually all that shocking. Texts. Uh, Virgil's Aeneid, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which Dante doesn't know. These are not necessarily quote unquote fictional texts to a medieval mind. These are, oh, they're a kind of history that's being written. And in the same way that they would accept Noah and the flood, I don't mean to step on any religious toes here, but in the same way that Dante would accept Noah and the flood, he would accept Aeneas and the journey to found Rome. It, it all comes out of a similar impulse toward textual veracity or the, the truth that is found in texts themselves, which means in my neo-rationalist modern post-scientific revolution brain can't handle. So I think that's my problem, that I freaked out that here sits a fictional character in Aeneas. Aeneas is no more fictional than Hector or Electra or half of these other figures for that matter. So that whole his fiction and history thing, I don't know. It doesn't seem right. What it seems right is here are the Trojans, Electra, Hector, and Aeneas, and then Caesar, not a Trojan. Caesar, here's old Julius. Here he is in limbo. He's standing down there on the enameled green on the grass in armor. You should really hear that loud and with falcon eyes in armor. In other words, he is at the moment in which he is crossing the Rubicon, in which he is coming essentially to destroy the Republic and found the empire of Rome. This is a very crucial point for Dante. This is a very crucial point that's going to tie back to Lucan. It's when we get to it, we're going to tie up Lucan and Caesar and all of this together. And this is not a, necessarily a good thing for Dante, the destruction of the Roman Republic and the founding of the empire. But for right now, we should see that C Caesar is in armor. He's ready to go to battle with these falcon eyes coming to Rome to establish himself as Caesar. And notice he's not named Julius here. Remember, Virgil said, I was born sub Julio under Julius. Here, he's not named Julius. He's named Caesar in armor and with falcon eyes. I saw Camilla and Penthesilia. <laughs> I stumbled over that, didn't I? Penthesilia. Okay. Who's he seeing here? Uh, Camilla, Penthesilia. Penthesilia is the queen of the Amazons. Camilla has already been mentioned, remember, uh, in the prophecy of, of that this figure was going to come and put to death a she-wolf that had plagued Italy, the Italy of Camilla and Turnus, and these figures were listed. She's already been mentioned in comedy once, which note that these people that are being listed here, Camilla... Penthesilia, and on the other side, King Latinus, who sat with his daughter Lavinia. These are the people who fought with Aeneas, and Aeneas, in fact, marries Lavinia. These are 
all the Trojans, their allies, and that Caesar's wedged into this bunch is interesting. It's interesting because, again, Dante's going to follow Virgil in believing that Rome is an outgrowth of the Trojans. And here come the Romans. I saw Brutus, not Brutus as in Etu Brute, not as in Julius Caesar, the guy who kills Julius Caesar. He's, t- <laughs> he's talking about Lucius Brutus, the first consul of the Roman Republic. And he drives out Tarquinius or Tarquin, who is the last king of Rome before the Republic is founded. Then a list of four names, Lucretia, Julia, Marcia, Cornelia. These are all connected with the Republic. Marcia is the wife of Cato the Younger. We're going to come back to that when we meet Cato in in comedy. Um, Lucretia was raped by Tarquin's son, the person that Brutus, that Lucius Brutus drove out. Lucretia is raped by Tarquin's son. And in fact, Shakespeare wrote a poem about that, right? The Rape of Lucrece. That's that person, Lucretia. Julia, that's probably the daughter of Julius, perhaps. And Cornelia is a little hard to pin down. There's several options for who Cornelia is. And over by himself, I saw Saladin, the Islamic ruler. He's here in limbo. Saladin, the, the sultan of Egypt in the 1100s, the man who basically drove the crusaders out of the levant the holy land that ruler there he is sitting by himself it is interesting that amongst all these great figures of roman and trojan history the last in the list is an islamic figure an islamic figure who you would think dante would be utterly opposed to after all he he broke the back of the crusaders in the levant and yet Here he sits in limbo, and he may be in hell. Okay, granted, he's in hell, but he's not, again, a very bad place in hell. In fact, he's in the best part of limbo. He's inside the castle with the green grass and the people walking around talking about philosophy. Wow. So this list of historical figures ends with a Muslim, with Saladin, with the Sultan of Egypt. And this is where you can see a break. Because here, the passage breaks and the poem goes on. When I lifted my eyes yet higher, I saw the master of those who know. Now the tenor of who's he's going to see changes. Now he's going to see philosophers. When I lifted my eyes yet higher, I saw the master of those who know. This is paraphrastic phrasing for Aristotle. It could only be Aristotle in Dante's day. By Dante's day, all of Aristotle's surviving works had been translated into Latin and were available to Dante. Dante, this is who Dante is going to hold on to Aristotle as the absolute bastion and fortress of classical learning. When I lifted my eyes yet higher and saw the master of those who knows he was his philosophical family, all look at him and do him honor. Notice the shift up to the present tense. All look at him and do him honor. This movement back and forth between past and present. You can hear the poet and the pilgrim at some tension here. There I saw Socrates and Plato. And we should note that Dante only knows of Plato from an incomplete translation of one work, the Timaeus. That's all Dante knows. He knows of Plato and Socrates through Aristotle. Anything else by Plato is not available to Dante. And so that's why the the master of those you know has to be Aristotle. 
we might now in Western thought think, oh, that's got to be Plato. And then sitting around Plato is Socrates and Aristotle and all that stuff. Dante doesn't know enough to know that. And so sitting around Aristotle closest to him are Socrates and Plato closest to him in front of everyone else. And then comes this line of various philosophers. Also, Democritus, who says the world happened by chance. That's actually a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. Democritus, the world happened by chance and probably is the way Dante knows this philosopher. Democritus, <laughs> as far as we're concerned, is the guy not only who posited the world happened by chance and thus anticipated the quantum universe, but is the first person who posited the existence of atoms as the basis of matter. That's a whole matter in and of itself. So there's Democritus, there's Diogenes, there's Anaxagoras, there's Thales. These are all various people known either by Aristotle and Dante knows them through Aristotle or a few of them he could have read on his own. This is where I want to stop and just say this. Aristotle regarded Thales as the father of Greek philosophical thought, and some of these are pre-Socratic philosophers. They exist before Plato and before Socrates, and they're the kind of foundations of Greek philosophical thought. If you want to go out to my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com, I put up a series of links to YouTube videos uh, explaining who some of these philosophers are. They're not my videos. They're other people's videos. But if you just want to go a little deeper, I put up some video links so that you can see who these people are. Some of them, it's, uh, it's I think Dante's listing things for his own purposes. Some of them, they may be there thematically for reasons of their own. It's a little tough to say. I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but it's a little tough to say exactly why this list exists. Uh, you can imagine that many Italian scholars have a great deal of allegory readings of these lists, but I'm passing on. There I saw the great collector of things according to their qualities. I mean Dioscorides. That is, the Dioscorides wrote a treatise on the medicinal nature of plants. And also Orpheus, a legendary, even mythical poet. Cicero, mm, Cicero, great Roman writer, that Dante claims that he developed a love of philosophy because he read Cicero and Boethius. But Cicero is one of the ways that Dante developed a love of philosophy. Linus, who is another mythical poet. Seneca, the moralist, the great Roman moralist, Seneca. Euclid, the geometer. Ptolemy, Ptolemaic universe, Earth the center. We know all about Ptolemy at this point. Hippocrates. Now we're at some uh, physicians. We're at some naturalists. We're some mathemat mathematicians, astronomers. We're covering the trivium and quadrivium, the schools of learning. We're covering them all up. Hippocrates, Avincenna. Oh, there's what I leapt over once upon a time. And Galen, Hippocrates, Galen, too doctors, physicians, right? Medical writers. But in the middle of them, Avincenna, that is Ibn Sina, that is a Muslim or an Islamic philosopher. Gosh, how can I even say this to you? Ibn Sina, who died in 1036, may be the greatest philosopher of the pre-rational world. We know that he wrote about 450 works, 240 of them survive, on, of which 150 are on philosophy, 40 are on medicine. He was a practicing medical man in his own day. 
his medical texts were the basis of medical school learning until the mid 1600s and in fact his thought about why god exists became the fundamental medieval concept of what the proof why there must be god ibn sina claimed that god must exist because god is the entity that cannot not exist there has to be one entity that cannot not exist. And by definition, that has to be God. And in fact, we're going to see that crop up in comedy several times. This very Islamic thought is going to creep into comedy. And here he is, a Muslim potentially the greatest philosopher, as I say, of the pre-rational world. But here he is, a Muslim. And then we end with Averroes, another Muslim, who made the great commentary. Averroes, a Spanish figure, wrote a commentary on Aristotle's De Anima. Oh, man, we're going to return to this in comedy, but Averroes posited something that drove St. Thomas Aquinas wild. Averroes posited as an Islamic philosopher that the intellect is a unified whole, that the, that the human intellect actually exists as an entity that is unified. This drove Aquinas crazy in his scholastic reasoning, but it may be, we have to wait for the purgatorio, it may be Dante's basic understanding of the human intellect, and it's Islamic. It comes from this this guy, Averroes. So get what happened here. We had a list of historical figures. Come on, give me that Aeneas is historical. We had a give me that Electra is historical and Hector. Um, we had a list of historical figures that ended with a Muslim. Then we had a list of Greco-Roman philosophers, writers, geometers, astronomers, doctors that ended with two Islamic figures. Both lists end at Islam. This is what I never saw before. It's almost shocking. Okay, yes, it's the first circle of hell, admittedly, but the only contemporaries of Dante's that he sees in limbo are all Islamic figures. Everyone else in this list, Democrates, Diogenes, these people have a long, long back in history, thousands even of years from Dante. And yet the people who are his kind of contemporaries, a couple hundred years, 300 years before him, but still closest contemporaries to him are all Islamic. It's almost mind-boggling. Now, I want to tell you that the one of the reasons I never liked this canto is because of this list. I always felt like these lists of these characters, here we go, bang, 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 him, 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 her, her, her. I always thought like that this was kind of um, elementary art. It wasn't very good writing on Dante's part. And I still hold that. I'll confess to you that I still hold to that a bit. Yet at the same time, I think the list is interesting in and of itself. Who Dante sees, who he's never seen, who he has no access to, who he couldn't know, Empedocles. He couldn't know anything about Empedocles except through Aristotle. Heraclitus couldn't know anything about him except through Aristotle. Thales couldn't know anything about him except through Aristotle. Dante is reaching into the past for figures that he doesn't have any direct access to, 
putting them in limbo and listing them off, including Plato, who all Dante knows is he has an incomplete translation of one work, the Timaeus, not even one of the big works, not even the Apology, gosh, not even the Republic, for gosh sake. He's got this one work to hold on to, a partial piece of it. I want to say one thing about this before we come out to the last bit of this canto. I lead an online book group, and we just finished. We read mostly contemporary novels in this online book group. And we just finished a long, (laughs) big discussion on an Iranian novel, The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree. You should read it. It's an amazing novel. It's a a full-on magic realism critique of the current Iranian regime. Uh, the woman who wrote it basically wrote it on the run. Uh, Shakufa Azar basically is on the run. She lives in uh, Australia. And the translator into English doesn't even want to be named for fear of reprisals. Anyway, in this book, the narrator lists all the books that sh- that her father had in the home. And it's a constant barrage list of all of these books. And many people in the book group, I have to say, were uncomfortable with this. They kept saying, well, she's just showing off. I mean, the author is just showing off all these books that she's read, all this Western history, all this Eastern theology, all this Eastern philosophy, all this Middle Eastern thought. She's just showing off by just cataloging all these books. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, it may not just be, I didn't I admit, I didn't address this too much in the group because I'm a discussion leader, not a teacher of that group. I thought to myself, wait a minute, it may not just be that she's listing them off. There may be a way that she, the narrator, and maybe the author behind her is trying to latch onto something larger than the repression of the world around her. And I now see this list in limbo of all of these people as Dante on the run in exile. You can't have very many books when you're on the run. You know what it's like when you get on a plane. You can't bring all these books with you on a plane, right? And if you're in exile running for your life, my gosh, you're going to hope Con Grande de la Scala has some of these with him. Listing this stuff off is a way to hold. It's a way to hold on to yourself in the middle of unbelievably crushing circumstances, both in that Iranian novel, The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree, and maybe here too. Maybe here, on the run, Dante is finding himself holding on to what he can. And by listing these historical figures, these figures from giant works of literature, these uh, pre-Socratic philosophers, as well as Aristotle, as well as Islamic thinkers, as well as great doctors like Hippocrates and Galen, at least great in Dante's day, as well as Ptolemy, the, the architect of the universe as Dante knows it, maybe seeing them here in limbo is a way to just hold them and hold on to them when you yourself are on the run. Okay, the last bit. I can't possibly present all those there. Who is that I? You know who it is. That's the poet. That's not the pilgrim. That's the poet. He's talking to you again. I can't possibly present all those there because I'm pushed on by my long theme. Remember last time I told you maybe some of the coyness in this entire canto is that he's feeling the pressure to keep writing and to keep the thing moving at a clip? Well, here's where I got it from because I'm pushed on by my long theme. What I say doesn't come close to what I want to say. I find this phrase amazing because right here, 
Dante, the poet, seems to admit the contrivance of this entire canto. What I say doesn't come close to what I want to say. It seems like right here, the poet steps out and says, this canto isn't all I want it to be. It's not, maybe not finished. It's not where I wanted it to go. And yet I feel like this book is already going to grow so large. I got to get going. So maybe this is it. Maybe this is a claim by the poet to admit to the contrivance of this canto. And I'm going to talk a lot more about that in the next episode. So for now, let's just end it. The Company of Six. Bye-bye, Homer. Bye-bye, Horace. Bye-bye, Amin. Bye-bye, Lucan. The Company of Six now dwindles to two. And my wise guide leads me along another path, out of the stillness and into the twitching air. I translate this twitching, vibrating, trembling, tremoring air. The whole atmospherics has changed so that the poem ends the canto. I come to a place where nothing is that shines. I could have translated it so that I came come I come so that I come to a place where nothing shines, but I wanted you to hear how odd it is in the Tuscan, in the medieval Tuscan, because the way it's worded in the Tuscan lands on the word nothing very hard, so that you really hear it. So that I come to a place where nothing is that shines. After all of this giant catalog of thinkers, this giant catalog of history, that loss of into nothingness, all this grandeur, the castle, the grass, all these thinkers, my God, one can spend days, months, years talking about Diogenes, talking about what they thought, why, why Democritus thought the world happened by chance, what he thought atoms were, one could spend forever on lists like this. And so there's so much that it suddenly hits us right upside the head. We're about to walk into a place where nothing is that shines. Why does the, why does the canto come to this place that it leads into canto five? Because we're ready for it? Because we're ready for canto five? Because Dante is learning to write the book he wants to write, and this is leading him to a forward momentum which allows him to posit the next canto at the end of this one. We're about to walk into the world of the lustful. All I can say is the canto four of Limbo is a big canto with lots of problems in it and that's why I want to stop in the next episode of Walking with Dante I want to take a look back I want to look back all the way from canto one through four I want to kind of sum it up where we've been and how we got here I want to talk through some of the interpretive knots I glossed over and I want to offer you my current understanding and explanation why canto four becomes a bit of a mess so given all that check in to the next episode of Walking with Dante and we will look back from Cantos 1 through 4 subscribe, rate the podcast <laughs> you don't want to miss another episode, do you? no, you don't want to come back let's look at Cantos 1 through 4 on the next episode of the podcast Walking with Dante Walking with Dante